All right, once again, good morning. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6? If you're new with us, we welcome you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we're doing it verse by verse. And we find ourselves this morning in chapter 6, where we have been studying one of Jesus' most important teachings, the Bread of Life Discourse. Now, as we have pointed out, the main theme of this discourse is eternal life. That's what makes it so very important. Nothing more important than eternal life. And the reason this message is called the bread of life discourse is because in it Jesus reveals that the manna that fell for 40 years from heaven in the wilderness to keep the children of Israel alive in the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, uh, days of Moses. Uh, but anyways, but um, God had this manna come for 40 years while they were in the wilderness. Uh, in the days of Moses, to keep Israel alive physically, Jesus tells us in this chapter that really that was a type of him. In other words, it pointed to him who was and of course still is the true bread which came down from heaven like the manna did. But this bread, Jesus himself, wouldn't sustain people physically. It would impart life, spiritual life to them eternally. Verse 35, and we're just reviewing a little bit. But Jesus said to the multitudes, I am the bread of life. The Greek word is zoe, which means spiritual life. In this case, eternal life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. When you come to Christ, you'll never hunger and thirst in your soul again. You'll be satisfied. That's the idea. You'll be saved. And then he goes on the first part of verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, this statement, in this statement, Jesus is saying that all would be saved during the church age. That's Pentecost, Acts 2, to the rapture, we think is coming soon, where all were foreknown and chosen by the Father, who will someday present them, the body of Christ, to the Son as a love gift and as a bride. He makes it a point, the Lord Jesus, to say that all of those the Father gives the Son will come to Him, will come to Jesus for salvation all that means guys no one's salvation depends on you and i it doesn't depend that you know if we just get it right and just have the right words they're going to get saved nobody's salvation depends on us on our presentation if we botch the gospel presentation or if we chicken out all together and don't share the gospel at all with somebody we are not the issue this is important that you understand that a lot of christians are harboring on a lot of guilt because they've taken people's salvations on, on themselves, and so on. But Jesus is clear here that a, a person's salvation depends solely on the ability of the sovereign God of the universe to save, sustain, hold on to them, and take them all the way to completion. In other words, bring them all the way from predestination to glorification. Think of Romans 8, verses 29 to 30. We'll come back to that in a second. And then he says at the latter part of verse 37, And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So again, as we're reviewing from the last time, first of all, Jesus is telling us that anyone, anyone can come to him for salvation regardless of how sinful or wicked of a life they've lived. He assures them that they won't be turned away. If they come to him by faith and ask for salvation, Believing in Christ, Jesus is assuring them they won't be refused eternal life. They won't be turned away. But secondly, 
I believe when the Lord said that the one who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. I believe that he was not only saying that anyone can come. He won't turn them away if they want salvation. But also once they are saved, they will never listen. They will never be cast out of God's family and lose their salvation. So verse 37, and commentators point this out, is a very important pivotal verse. In verse 37, it not only deals with the scope of salvation, that anyone can be saved, but also it deals with the security of salvation. Those who are saved are never lost. And it's concerning this last point, guys, that we want to pick up our study this morning. The Lord Jesus goes on to state after he says, look, nobody who ever comes to me is ever going to lose their salvation, basically. And he goes on to, to state that. Then he backs that up with some of the strongest terms, uh, in some of the strongest terms, in all the New Testament, that once a person puts their faith in him and receives eternal life, that life is eternally secure. Now, let me just stop and say what should be obvious but isn't. Eternal life, by its very definition, has to mean uninterrupted life for eternity. If someone can lose eternal life, well, that life obviously wasn't eternal in the first place. Years ago, a woman came up to Dr. Harry Ironside, a fantastic Bible teacher, and uh, Ironside had just gotten done speaking to a group of people about the, the absolute eternal security of a believer's salvation in Christ. And this woman came up, and I'm reading the, what happened, okay? She uh, came up, and she said to Dr. Ironside that she didn't believe that uh, Christian salvation was secure, that it was only as secure in her mind as long as that person didn't fall away through sin, which if they did, then she said they would lose their salvation. But Madam Ironside said, God promised us eternal life, which by its, very by its very definition must be life for eternity. Yes, she said, it's eternal until we fall away and lose it. Ironside responded, Madam, if God promised that if we received Jesus Christ as our Savior, he'd give us life for a decade, how long would that be? She said, well, it'd be life for 10 years. Okay. Dr. Ironside said, what if God promised to give us life for a century if we received his son as our Savior? How long would that be? She said, that would be life for 100 years. All right, what do you think he meant when he said that if we received his son as our Savior, he would give us eternal life? How long would that be? She said, life as long as we stayed faithful and didn't fall away. And she walked away. Some years ago, the author of a book on theology made this statement. He said, truly, some truly converted people have fallen from grace, and the danger of doing so threatens every Christian, end quote. Now, guys, that's a very important statement, if it's true. Because if it's true that some Christians have lost their salvation, and every Christian is in danger of doing so, well, that's a very important thing to know. I mean, if you can lose your salvation, you better find out quick how to hang on to it. Now, guys, this issue has been debated for many, many years in theological circles. I'm certainly not going to solve uh, it today. But I want to give to you what I believe the Scriptures teach on this subject, and we can disagree in love if you'd like. But, um, look, the main problem I and many others have against this teaching that says a Christian can lose their salvation is that it makes salvation conditional. Conditional. 
Look, God has saved me through his grace by faith. We know that from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. But now holding on to my salvation is my responsibility, these folks tell us. Conditioned upon my faithfulness and living up to God's standards. If I don't live up to those standards, I forfeit God's grace and lose my salvation, they say. Folks, that is a works righteousness approach to salvation. A works righteousness approach to salvation. This approach to salvation, in effect, says that once God has saved me by his grace, and they acknowledge that we don't do anything to earn it, we just receive it by faith. That's how you get saved. But then they go on to say, but after you've received it by God's grace, well, now you have to hang on to it, okay, by working uh, at staying saved. By living a righteous life. Whatever that means, depending on who you talk to, that can mean a lot of things, right? But this was the very error that Paul the Apostle rebuked the Galatians for embracing. In Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3, remember he called them foolish Galatians. He said, Who has bewitched you that you should so soon turn from the, from the gospel that I gave to you, the gospel of grace, and have turned to another gospel? By believing that once you're saved by the Spirit through God's grace, you now have to work to be made perfect in the flesh, or in other words, to bring yourself to full glorification. Paul said, how ridiculous is it for you to think that God saved you by His grace, but now you have to hold on to it through your works. That's legalism, and that's exactly what the Bible, what the Gospel is not teaching. This teaching is amazing. It's still here in the church. It always has been from the beginning. This is salvation is just truly not a gift we receive by faith. It's a reward we earn by our righteous living. Either earn it or hold on to it and so on. But I must keep the law once I'm saved by grace. Because if I don't, I can fail. Grace will fail. And uh, in the process so will my righteousness and with it my salvation. That's what some have called eternal insecurity, all right? Look, the security of your salvation is one of the greatest truths you as a Christian can ever come to terms with. Because, listen, it will give you a firm foundation upon which to build your entire relationship with God. Are you going to build your relationship with God on His grace or on your works? Legalism. Satan loves to attack this truth because he's always trying to get us to doubt our, the security of our salvation, which is why we are admonished in Scripture. Paul said it in Ephesians 6, verse 17, to put on the, what? Helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is not a literal helmet, obviously. It's a metaphor, but um, it's putting on this uh, metaphorical helmet. What, what is this helmet of salvation? Well, it's something that protects our minds, our thoughts from doubts about our salvation. I mean, Satan can discourage you as a Christian. He does this constantly. I've talked to several people recently who have never doubted their salvation until recently because of all the tribulation and anxieties and different other things going on in their lives now. They're wondering if they were ever really saved. But if Satan can discourage you as a Christian by constantly pointing out your failures, your sins, your weaknesses, bad habits, poor health, or failing finances, which some group lump in together, you know, it's, you know you're, you're right with God, you know you're saved if you're prospering. 
you're healthy, you know? If Satan can get you to look at all these circumstances, he can at some point begin to get you to doubt whether or not you're really saved. Because listen, if I was really saved, would I have all these problems? As if being a Christian means you're never going to have any problems. This is also a lie of the devil, right? Now, if you let him use your circumstances to, to discourage you to the point of you doubting your salvation, he's won. Because look, he knows he's lost you. He believes in the eternal security more than the body of Christ does. All right? He knows he's lost you. So his main goal now is to neutralize your effectiveness for Christ. He, he's lost you. You're going to heaven if you're a true Christian. He knows that. So now what he wants to do is neutralize your effectiveness for Christ by getting you to either live a carnal life or to doubt whether or not you're really saved. Doubt your salvation. Based on what? Based on the fact that I blow it. Well, we all blow it. John said if we say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. All right? We're not going to be perfect this side, of, this side of glory. But, you know, the idea is if Satan can get you to really buy into that mentality, he's won because you're never going to live like a victorious Christian, which is your birthright, if you don't think you are a Christian. That's why Paul knew the helmet of salvation was so vital. If we're going to be effective, victorious soldiers for Christ, a helmet that he referred to in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 as the helmet, listen, of the hope of salvation. Gave us a little more than in Ephesians 6. He calls it in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, the helmet of the hope of salvation. Listen, guys, in the New Testament, whenever the word hope is used in connection with the promise of God, especially with regard to the promise of eternal life, listen to me. The word hope is never associated with wishful thinking. It's, it always means an absolute certainty, a done deal, right? A sure thing. Whenever the Bible talks about hope, uses that word, with regard to any, and I think it's always used with regard to promises of God. Anytime the word hope is used in relation to a promise that God has given you in his word, that hope is not a I hope so hope, it's an I know so hope. It's a sure thing. Turn to Titus 1. And I just read, want to read verse 2. Because in verse 2, Paul is talking about the hope of eternal life, which God, he said, uh, who cannot lie, promised before time began. He says, he talks about the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. I want to, to key in on the word promised because it's critical to our understanding of eternal life. Look, there are two kinds of promises in the Bible, conditional and unconditional promises. Conditional promises are what's called bilateral promises, which means two-party. These are also covenants or contracts. A uh, unconditional promise in the Bible, an unconditional covenant is a, is a unilateral, which means a one-party contract or promise, okay? All the promises in Scripture that relate to eternal life, including the promise Paul is talking about here in Titus 1, verse 2, are all, listen, unconditional, unilateral promises. In other words, 
They don't depend on our faithfulness to do anything. When God promised you eternal life if you believed in his son, you and I didn't have to do anything. That was an unconditional, unilateral promise, okay? He didn't require us to do anything. He didn't say if you go to church, light enough candles, pray enough rosaries, uh, feed the poor on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Fridays. He, he said, believe on my son. You will have everlasting life. We don't have to do anything. It doesn't require any faithfulness on our part. These promises that are unconditional only depend on the faithfulness of God to keep his word, his promise. Let me use the illustration of being the beneficiary in somebody's will. Say yet you have a rich uncle. Don't we all wish we had one? Say you had a rich uncle, and in his will, he promised to give you something when he died. Now, when he does die, and you go down for the reading of the will, you don't have to do anything to get what your uncle promised you. It's a gift. It's a unilateral promise he made you, an unconditional promise that uh, you just have to come down and receive it, okay? How do we know the promise that Paul refers to in Titus 1, verse 2, where God promises eternal life was an unconditional promise? Because he tells us it was a promise given by God, listen, before time began. Before time began. Well, if God made this promise before time began, obviously we weren't around, okay? Uh, we weren't around. We were not, had not been created. Um, and so if he made this promise before time began, um, who did he make the promise to? We weren't there. Obviously, he made the promise to himself, a promise to Godhead, the Trinity, made with itself that all who would believe in the son jesus christ would that he would give the gift of eternal life to it was a promise he made to himself that anyone who believed in his son he would give them the gift of eternal life that promise again guys was unconditional because to have a conditional promise you have to have two parties present if god was going to make a, a conditional promise to the human race about eternal life, which means he had, he promised to give them eternal life, us, uh, but we had to do certain things ourselves. That's where the idea behind a two-party contract or covenant. Uh, each party has terms to fulfill. And if they both fulfill their terms, then whatever was promised becomes a reality, right? If God wanted to make a, a conditional covenant with the human race, uh, that our salvation would be ours, or eternal life, if we did certain things, then we man would have had to have been there. Probably man in the person of Adam, representing the human race in the beginning, right? Uh, but we weren't there. This was before time began. A conditional promise is, is like the promise that God made with Israel. Remember when God led them out of Egypt, brought them to the base of Mount Sinai, said to Moses, come up to the top of the mount, I want to propose a covenant to the people with the people, all right? And uh, basically God told Moses, who now represented the nation, he said, look, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. If you want, if, if, if you want to enter into this covenant with me, then understand uh, you have to fulfill these terms. He gave them the law. And he said, look, if you fulfill these terms, think of the Ten Commandments, make it easy. If you, if you do these commandments, then I will give you eternal life, all right? It would be a conditional covenant right a two-party 
agreement or contract. That was the old covenant. Of course, it failed miserably, which we'll talk about in a second. But in the case of the new covenant, and the word covenant could be could translated testament. In the case of the New Testament, as Paul mentions in Titus 1 verse 2, this promise was given before mankind was created, which meant it was an unconditional unilateral promise or covenant that God made with himself. Again, think of a will, which is what the word testament actually means. Is think of last will and testament. Under the new covenant or new testament, which is God's will, he said that or he decreed that when, you know, in a real will, somebody can promise you something in their will, but they have to die before you can take possession of that promise, right? God promised in his will, the New Testament, that he decreed that when the son died, Jesus Christ, that would allow him to offer to the human race a gift, which is eternal life. The only catch was people had to accept it. E even today, if somebody left you something in their will and you went down there and you heard what they left, you could say, I don't want that. I didn't like the person. I thought uh, he was a creep. I don't want anything from him. Some people kind of do that with Christ. They trample underfoot his blood, consider it an unholy thing. They reject him. They want nothing from him. And that's their choice. That's their choice. And God's will, he decreed that when the, de when the, when the son died, that um, we would inherit eternal life if we accepted it. Uh, again, that, it means it, it doesn't depend on us to do anything in the way of works. All we have to do is receive it by faith. Let me just read to you a couple scriptures. You can write these down. I don't have time for you to turn to all these today. But again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a unilateral, unconditional promise. You, you don't have to do anything. He didn't say if you go to church and, 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 and do good, which we should go to church and do good. But you, know, you understand? For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Galatians 2, 21, Paul said, Look, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, if people who get saved by keeping the law, then Christ died in vain, Paul said. This is why we're told in the book of Hebrews that the new covenant through Christ is superior to the old covenant under Moses. In fact, in Hebrews 8, verse 6, it tells us that this new covenant was a better covenant than the old covenant. It was built on better promises. Well, what does that mean? Well, you don't have to turn there, but in, in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, God said, as Israel was, was completely not keeping the old covenant, they weren't faithful at all. God says, there's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, which includes us because we have been grafted in once we get saved. Read Romans 11. There's coming a day when I'm, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the one I made with their forefathers. When I took them by the hand led them out of Egypt, that covenant they broke. But this time, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, this time I'm going to take everything out of their hands. It's not going to depend on their faithfulness to do anything. It's all, all going to depend on my faithfulness to fulfill my promise, keep my word. 
And once a person receives my son, I'm going to put my spirit in their heart, write my laws in their heart, and they will love me and obey me from the heart. That's the new covenant. Not, no more external laws written on tablets of stone. That didn't work. God knew that. I'm just saying, you know, the old and the new covenant. New covenant, the spirit of God comes in when we receive Christ. God writes his laws in our hearts, and we love him and want to obey him from the heart. And so, guys, the helmet of salvation is only going to protect us if we put it on every day by basing our salvation, listen, not on our feelings or on our circumstances, but on the promises in God's word. Turn to 1 John 2. And let's pick it up in verse 25. John said, and this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those, listen, who try to deceive you. Deceive you how? By telling you your spiritual life in Christ is not eternal. What will that do? Well, that will put me back under the law. Because if now, if I believe now, and a lot of Christians, a lot of groups believe this, if I believe that I'm working towards my salvation, working towards eternal life, that means I've got to work hard every day. I've got to keep the law. And um, that's a terrible system to live under. There is no joy through law. The only joy comes through grace, where God gives us things freely. Satan wants me under the law because then he can condemn me. Again, he knows he's lost me, but he wants to neutralize my effectiveness. So if he can get me to think legalistically that I have to earn everything God gives me, I have to hold on to my salvation by my good works, well, he can condemn me. He can neutralize me. If he can get me to think that salvation or eternal life is something that I, I don't receive it by, by faith, uh, I receive it by works. If he can get me to believe that, um, then he's got me where he wants me. Now, look, there are those who believe we don't actually receive eternal life until we die. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. That's Catholic dogma. That if any Catholic says, including the Pope, that they have eternal life, they are to be anathematized, cursed to the lowest hell. In Roman Catholic theology, we are working towards salvation and eternal life. They're not the only group that teaches this, okay? But uh, we're working toward, you accept Christ. Catholics believe you first got to get water baptized as a baby. Uh, that puts you on the road, okay? And then after you get old enough, you have to start keeping sacraments and, and so on and so forth. And living according to Catholic uh, dogma and uh, making sure that you, you know, it's it just a whole litany of things that you have to do. Because, you know, because once you're baptized as an infant, now you're on the way towards eternal life. And each day that you live a righteous life, depending on what group you're talking about, what group defines it, you earn little installments of eternal life. That's Catholic theology. Each day you earn little, inst going to Mass, lighting candles, keeping the sacrament, you, you earn little installments of eternal life. But you don't really 
fully receive it until after you die, having proved your worthiness, which makes eternal life again a reward we earn rather than a gift we receive. And so much of the argument, guys, against eternal security lies in the idea of when eternal life really begins. As we've already pointed out, eternal life by its very definition has to mean uninterrupted life for eternity so that once you have it, you have it forever. So then that begs the question, when do we receive eternal life? At the moment of salvation or when we die? You can write these down, but 1 John 5, 11 to 13. These are some very powerful scriptures, and I'm just going to read them to you. When do we receive eternal life? The moment we receive Christ as our Savior or when we die. 1 John 5, 11 to 13. John says, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. Past tense. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has this life, eternal life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Sounds like John was dealing with this issue in his day. Well, John 3.16, you all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Right? And not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life he who does not believe in the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abides on him so guys the bible we can read dozens of others but the bible makes this very clear that eternal or everlasting life doesn't begin when you die and go to heaven it becomes yours the instant you receive jesus into your heart here on the earth i mean how could god promise us eternal life if it wasn't secure for eternity once you enter into it think about that God promised us eternal life. But if it wasn't a promise that we would really fully have until we died and went to heaven and only after we had proven whether we were worthy, well, the Bible would never be able to say that receive Christ and you will have eternal life. All Jesus could have done and the Bible writers could have done in the New Testament would say, look, here's the deal. You um, accept Christ and then you live Every day, you know, keeping God's commandments and living a holy life and, and so on and so forth. And, if, and when you die, if you've proven yourself worthy, I'll give you eternal life. But that's not what we see in the scripture, is it? And the scriptures clearly say that once someone believes in Christ, they already have eternal life, which by its definition is life for eternity. Guys, the real issue is isn't can a christian lose their salvation the real issue is does a person actually have salvation that, that's the real issue okay it, it's for me it's not can a christian lose their salvation it's did that person ever really have their salvation turn to romans 8 romans 8 29 to 30 is what some have called the golden chain of salvation. I want to back it up to verse 28, though, because it begins with a promise, basically, from God. Well, Paul writes this, but he's basing on what God has already said. Romans 8, 28, we know. 
All things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We all know that verse very well. Romans 8.28 is telling us that for the child of God, all things are working together for our good. Which means, listen now, think about this. If everything is working together for our ultimate good, then nothing can work for our ultimate evil or bad. In other words, no, no hell. If everything is working for our ultimate good, heaven, then nothing can be working for our ultimate judgment or condemnation in hell. Didn't Paul begin Romans 8 with that very idea? Verse 1. He said, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a term for saved. In Christ Jesus. He said, therefore there is now no condemnation, no judgment, no hell for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on the eternal security of the believer. It starts with no condemnation and ends with no separation. And in between, Paul gives us some of the most powerful arguments with regard to the believer's eternal security in Christ you're ever going to find. Uh, verse 29, let me read to you what some have called the golden chain of salvation. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus Christ. Now, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also what? Will glorify? He also glorified, past tense. Sometimes in Greek, when something is so absolutely certain, the writer will put it in the past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet. Paul is telling us, in no uncertain terms, that if God predestined you, and if God uh, he foreknew you and predestined you and called you and justified you, you're saved, he is going to glorify you. That's just the way it is. You see, if you're justified, saved, you must of necessity, by the promise of God, come all the way to future glorification. In other words, guys, if you're saved for real, you're saved forever. You see, Paul's whole argument in Romans 8 for the eternal security of the believer in Christ is based on the truth, listen, that there is no such thing as a salvation that's present but not future. Listen to me again. There's no such thing as a salvation that is present but can be lost in the future. If you're saved now, you're saved forever. Philippians 1 verse 6. God's always going to finish what he started, Okay. Philippians 1, verse 6, I am, uh, and I am certain that God who began a good, good work within you, that was, that was begun the, the instant you received Christ as your Savior. God put a, stuck a sign in your forehead, uh, work in progress now, okay? And uh, so, you know, um, but he who began the good work within you will continue his work until, listen, it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. Well, we're glorified. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. The author 
Of course, he started the whole thing. He was the good shepherd going out looking for lost sheep, called us. We responded. He saved us. He's going to finish what he started. And what is the finished product? To bring you all the way to glorification in heaven. I love Hebrews 7.25. 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost. The Greek is all the way to glorification. Those who come to God through him. Because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Interse People read over uh, Hebrews 7.25 so quickly. They don't really understand what the writer is saying. Every time, as Christians now, every time we blow it, and we're going to blow it, the devil steps up to the throne of God the Father, and says to the Father, oh, see, uh, they've sinned, they've blown it. He's our accuser, right? The accuser of the brethren. Jesus is our advocate, 1 John 2. The word in Greek for advocate is attorney for the defense. And every time Satan steps up to accuse us because we've blown it, the Lord Jesus steps up and he intercedes on our behalf. Father, don't pay any attention to that. All their sins are under my blood. I've already paid for them. This constantly goes on. John says the blood of Jesus Christ is continually cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews 10, 14. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Oh, sure. I'm on, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a progress, a construction project. I'm, I'm blowing it, but I'm, I'm hopefully as I walk with Christ more and more, I'm becoming more and more like him through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'm already positionally perfected forever. My sanctification has nothing to do with my future glorification. There are carnal Christians who are going to be ashamed when the Lord comes. They're going to be ashamed of his appearing in the, at the rapture, right? They're still going to be saved. Because they're saved by grace. That's a, a done thing. All right, let's bring it to a close. So God made us a promise as his children. A promise that if you're truly a child of God, God will never disown you. He'll never throw you out of the family of God. He may chasten you. He will chasten you. But he loves you. You think he didn't know what he was getting himself into before he called you and me? You think I, do, think I ever do things that surprise him? Oh, you really disappointed me. Oh, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> God knew everything. He still chose me. I can grieve him. I can disobey him. He will chasten me in love. But he'll never cast me out of the family where I'm lost. Verse 37 again. All the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. But then, as we said earlier, the Lord Jesus backs that statement up with some of the strongest language in the entire New Testament regarding the security of each believer's salvation. Verse 38, before he gets into that, he says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, if you've been coming the last few weeks, we've been working our way through an outline. The second main point of that outline is the divine declaration of the Savior. And this feeds into that, okay? The divine declaration of the Savior. And he's telling us right here in verse 38, and there's, of course, many other places we could go. But he's telling us right here that his life did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. That's when God became flesh in the incarnation. 
But before that, he has always existed as the eternal God, second person of the Trinity, the Son, who at one point, because of the Father's will, came down from heaven, became a man, not to rule, not the first time he came. He came to die for the sins of humanity. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose, listen, nothing, nothing, but should raise what up at the last day? I hope you've got a translation that translates this exactly and not paraphrases it, because it's important. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Guys, the it <laughs> is referring to all believers as a group. We could call it the body of Christ, the church. Every believer is a part of this group. And Jesus is telling us this entire group will all make it into heaven without losing a single Christian. Jesus said, it's the Father's will that I should lose nothing. Aren't you glad he didn't say that I should lose uh, no more than 20%? <laughs> Oh, maybe 30%, you know. Yeah, 70%, that's pretty good. Aren't you glad the Lord Jesus didn't say that, but in fact said that, you know, all that the Father has given me are going to come to me. And all who come to me and become part of my body, my church, I'm going to raise the entire unit up, it. We'll raise it up. In, that's the Father's will, he said. And again, guys, this is one of the most powerful verses on the eternal security of the believer you will find anywhere in the New Testament. As far as Christians are concerned, the last day, I'll raise it up at the last day, refers to the day when Jesus comes for his church at the rapture. At that time, we know from Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 13 to 17, primarily I'm thinking of, but at that time, the trumpet will sound, the Lord will shout, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then all living believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and for, will forever then be with the Lord. The Greek word for caught up, which literally means snatched away, is harpazo. But, if you're, but in the Latin Vulgate, it's the word rapio. That's the word we get our word rapture from. So people say the word rapture is not even in the Bible. For you folks that believe in it, it's not even in the Bible. Well, first of all, the word Bible is not my Bible, but I have one, okay? <laughs> but if you're reading the Latin Vulgate, it is in the Bible. It's rapio, which is where we get our word rapture from. It doesn't matter what the wording is. The concept is there. The Lord's going to snatch his people off this earth before his judgment's poured out. Verse 40. Of course, at the time we were raptured, we, God's plan for our life with regard to redemption is fully reveal, re realized. We are at that point glorified. Verse 40, and, and we'll end here. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up. Oh, that's interesting, at the last day. Let me just say this first. In this verse, Jesus goes on to explain how a person can receive everlasting life. He said it's the Father's will that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. To see the Son here is obviously doesn't mean to see with your physical eyes. It's to see the Son through the eyes of faith. 
To become a member of God's family, a person must see, in other words, recognize by faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Then they must believe that he died for their sins, rose from the dead bodily on the third day. And then finally, he or she, by a definite act of faith, must receive the Lord Jesus into their heart as their own personal Savior. Just believing that Jesus Christ is God who died and rose again on the third day won't get you into heaven. The demons believe and tremble. You've got to believe to the point of commitment now. Head knowledge is great, but it only goes so far. You've got to take it from head knowledge down to a heart commitment. That's what biblical saving faith is all about. Once you receive Christ into your heart as your personal Savior, the Bible says you now have everlasting life and you also have the promise that you will never fall through the cracks. You will never you know, not measure up and lose your salvation. If you are part of it, the unit we call the body of Christ, the church, you, because all believers will be raised up together at the time of the rapture, if you're dead, if you died, if you're alive, of course, you'd be just raptured off the earth. But here the Lord not only promises that these folks have everlasting life, but he promises that it's eternal for all those who are in Christ. And I want you to notice in closing that the Lord repeats in verse 40 what he said in verse 39, but here in verse 40, he personalizes it. That's important. He said, and I will raise him, or her, of course, up at the last day. Look, we are not saved as a group. We are saved individually, right? You're not saved because your mom and dad were saved and because you were born into a Christian family, quote, unquote. Some people think that. You're not saved because you're an American or a Christian nation. Of course I'm saved. I've talked to people who actually believe that. We are saved not as a group, we are saved individually. But once we are saved, listen to me now, we belong to a group called the body of Christ, the church, which God sees as a unit and then promises us that as a unit, we all will. We will all be taken to heaven someday, the rapture, as one body, the body of Christ. Guys, let me just end by saying this. How in the world could God make a promise like that to all Christians? To all Christians, by saying, if you've really accepted my son, you are, you are part of a unit called the body of Christ, and you are going to be raised up someday to glory. How could he promise us that if our salvation was dependent on us in any way to be faithful? He couldn't have done it. The fact that he makes it a promise to say, you're saved individually, but once saved as a unit, you're going to be, the whole body is going to be raised one day uh, at the time of the rapture. All people that belong to the church of Christ, true Christians, we're going to get raptured and uh, glorified. Some are going to be ashamed because they weren't living for Christ. They're still going to be there because they're saved by grace. So we will continue on next week. And um, boy, there's a lot in this chapter. Um, that deals with some other very important issues. And um, actually, some of it has to do with Roman Catholic theology again. Uh, look, I'm not trying to pick on Catholics. I'm just trying to correct some of the teaching I received when I was a Catholic. 
and no doubt you've received, uh, about this bread of life that Jesus talked about. It's me, he said. Catholics say it's the Eucharist, which is the body of Christ. And you have to eat the Eucharist every week to the Mass if you're going to keep having eternal life. Uh, it's a problem. Okay? We will talk more about that, I think, next time. But keep praying because this, this uh, teaching in John 6 is so important and it, it touches so many areas of our lives that we need to understand it. So may God give us grace. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It's truth. We thank you, Lord, that your word teaches us that we are saved by grace. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. We're not worthy of it. We receive it by grace as a gift. And if we receive it by grace as a gift, your grace as a gift, then why do we think we need to hold on to it by our works? Father, this is the devil trying to, to condemn Christians, put them back under the law to neutralize their walk with you, their effectiveness for you. Father, give grace. To all of us that we will base our salvation not on our feelings or on our circumstances but on your promise which is it's a gift and if you want it you just receive it by faith so thank you lord for that of course we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word we ask all this in jesus name amen